CD6 Click, 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 click. The film spun to a standstill. There was a thunder of applause, a stamping of feet and a barrage of empty banged grain bags. In the very front row of the odium, the librarian stared up at the now empty screen. It was the fourth time that afternoon he'd watched Shadow of the Desert, because there's something about a 300-pound orangutan that doesn't encourage people to order it out of the pit between houses. A drift of peanut shells and screwed-up paper bags lay around his feet. The librarian loved the clicks. They spoke to something in his soul. He'd even started writing a story which he thought would make a very good moving picture. It was about a young ape who is abandoned in the big city and grows up being able to speak the language of humans. Everyone he showed it to said it was jolly good, often even before they'd read it. But something about this click was worrying him. He'd sat through it four times and he was still worried. He eased himself out of the three seats he was occupying and knuckled his way up the aisle and into the little room where Bizam was rewinding the film. Bizam looked up as the door opened. "'Get out,' he began, and then grinned desperately and said, "'Hello, sir. A pretty good click, eh?' We'll be showing it again any minute now, and... What the hell are you do... You can't do that! The librarian ripped the huge roll of film off the projector and pulled it through his leathery fingers, holding it up to the light. Bizam tried to snatch it back and got a palm in his chest that sat him firmly on the floor, where great coils of film piled up on top of him. He watched in horror as the great ape grunted, grasped a piece of the film in both hands, and with two bites, edited it. Then the librarian picked him up, dusted him off, patted him on the head, thrust the great pile of unwound click into his helpless arms, and ambled swiftly out of the room with a few frames of film dangling from one paw. Bizam stared helplessly after him. "'You're banned!' he shouted, when he judged the ape to be safely out of earshot. Then he looked down at the two severed ends. Breaks in film weren't unusual. Bizam had spent many a flustered few minutes feverishly cutting and pasting, while the audience cheerfully stamped its feet and high-spiritedly threw peanuts, knives and double-headed axes at the screen. He let the coils fall around him and reached for the scissors and glue. At least, he found after holding the two ends up to the lantern, the librarian hadn't taken a very interesting bit. Odd that. Bizam wouldn't have put it past the ape to have taken a bit where the girl was definitely showing too much chest, or one of the fight scenes. But all he'd wanted was a piece that showed the suns galloping down from their mountain fastness in single file on identical camels. Dunno what he wanted that for, he muttered, taking the lid off the glue pot. It just shows a lot of rocks. Victor and Gaspode stood among the sand dunes near the beach. That's where the driftwood hut is said Victor, pointing, and then if you look hard you can see there's a sort of road pointing straight towards the hill, but there's nothing on the hill but the old trees. Gaspode looked back at Holywood Bay. Funny it being circular, he said. I thought so, said Victor. I heard once where there was this city that was so wicked that the gods turned it into a puddle of molten glass, said Gaspode, apropos of nothing. "'and the only person who saw it happen "'was turned into a pillar of salt by day "'and a cheese shaker by night.' "'Gosh, what had the people been doing?' "'Dunno, probably not much. "'Doesn't take much to annoy gods.' "'Me, good boy. "'Good boy, laddie.' "'The dog came streaking over the dunes, "'a comet of gold and orange hair. "'It skidded to a halt in front of Gaspode "'and then began to dance around excitedly, yapping.' 
He's escaped and he wants me to play with him, said Gaspode despondently. Ridiculous, ain't it? Laddie, drop dead. Laddie rolled over obediently, all four legs in the air. See, he understands every word I say, muttered Gaspode. He likes you, said Victor. Huh, sniffed Gaspode. How are dogs ever going to amount to anything if they bounce around worshipping people just because they've been given a meal? What's he want me to do with this? Laddie had dropped a stick in front of Gaspode and was looking at him expectantly. He wants you to throw it, said Victor. What for? So he can bring it back. What I don't understand, said Gaspode as Victor picked up the stick and hurled it away, Laddie racing along underneath it. "'is how come we've descended from wolves? "'I mean, your average wolf, he's a bright bugger, know what I mean? "'Chock full of cunning and like that. "'We're talking grey paws racing over the trackless tundra is what I'm getting at.' "'Gaspode looked wistfully at the distant mountains. "'And suddenly, a handful of generations later, "'we've got Percy the puppier, with a cold nose, bright eyes, glossy coat, "'and the brains of a stunned herring. "'And you?' said Victor. Laddie whirled back in a storm of sand and dropped the damp stick in front of him. Victor picked it up and threw it again. Laddie bounded off, yapping himself sick with excitement. Well, yeah, said Gaspode, ambling along in a bow-legged swagger. Only I can look after myself. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. You think Dopey the Mutt there would last five minutes in Unk Moorpork? He set one paw in some of the streets... He's three sets of fur gloves and crispy fried number 27 at the nearest clatchy and all-night carry-out. Victor threw the stick again. Tell me, he said, who was the famous Gaspo you're named after? What, you never heard of him? No. He was dead famous. He was a dog? Yeah. It were years and years ago. There was this old bloke in Unk who snuffed it, and he belonged to one of them religions where they bury you after you're dead. And they did. And he had this old dog. Called Gaspode. Yeah. And this old dog had been his only companion. And after they buried the man, he lay down on his grave and howled and howled for a couple of weeks, growled at everybody who came near, and then died. Victor paused in the act of throwing the stick again. That's very sad, he said. He threw. Laddie tore along underneath it and disappeared into a stand of scrubby trees on the hillside. Yeah, everyone says it demonstrates a dog's innocent and undying love for his master, said Gaspode, spitting the words out as if they were ashes. You don't believe that, then? Not really. I believe any bloody dog will stay still an owl when you've just lowered the gravestone on his tail, said Gaspode. There was a ferocious barking. Don't worry about it. He's probably found a threatening rock or something, said Gaspode. He'd found Ginger. The librarian knuckled purposefully through the maze of Unseen University's library and descended the steps towards the maximum security shelves. Nearly all the books in the library were, being magical, considerably more dangerous than ordinary books. Most of them were chained to the bookcases to stop them flapping around. But the lower levels, there they kept the rogue books. The books whose behaviour or mere contents demanded a whole shelf, a whole room to themselves. Cannibal books, books which, if left on a shelf with their weaker brethren, would be found looking considerably fatter and more smug in the smoking ashes next morning.
Books whose mere contents pages could reduce the unprotected minds to grey cheese. Books that were not just books of magic, but magical books. There's a lot of loose thinking about magic. People go around talking about mystic harmonies and cosmic balances and unicorns, all of which is to real magic what a glove puppet is to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Real magic is the hand around the bandsaw, the thrown spark in the powder keg, the dimension warp linking you straight into the heart of a star, the flaming sword that burns all the way down to the pommel. Sooner juggle torches in a tar pit than mess with real magic. Sooner lie down in front of a thousand elephants. At least, that's what wizards say, which is why they charge such swingingly huge fees for getting involved with the bloody stuff. But down here in the dark tunnels, there was no hiding behind amulets and starry robes and pointy hats. Down here, you either had it or you didn't, and if you hadn't got it, you'd had it. There were sounds from behind the heavily barred doors as the librarian shuffled along. Once or twice something heavy threw itself against a door, making the hinges rattle. There were noises. The orangutan stopped in front of an arched doorway that was blocked with a door made not of wood but of stone, balanced so that it could easily be opened from the outside but could withstand massive pressure from within. He paused for a moment and then reached into a little alcove and removed a mask of iron and smoked glass, which he put on, and a pair of heavy leather gloves reinforced with steel mesh. There was also a torch made of oil-soaked rags. He lit this from one of the flickering braziers in the tunnel. At the back of the alcove was a brass key. He took the key, and then he took a deep breath. All the books of power had their own particular natures. The octavo was harsh and imperious. The bumper-fun grimoire went in for deadly practical jokes. The joy of tantric sex had to be kept under iced water. The librarian knew them all, and how to deal with them. This one was different. Usually people saw only tenth or twelfth hand copies, as like the real thing as a painting of an explosion was to, well, to an explosion. This was a book that had absorbed the sheer graphite-grey evil of its subject matter. Its name was hacked in letters over the arch, lest men and apes forget. Necrotelecomnicon. He put the key in the lock and offered up a prayer to the gods. Ook, he said fervently. Ook. The door swung open. In the darkness within, a chain gave a faint clink. She's still breathing, said Victor. Laddie leapt around them, barking furiously. "'Maybe you should loosen her clothing or something,' said Gaspode. "'Oh, it's just a thought,' he added. "'You don't have to glare at me like that. I'm a dog. What do I know?' "'She seems all right, but look at her hands,' said Victor. "'What the hell's she been trying to do?' "'Trying to open that door,' said Gaspode. "'What door? That door there!' Part of the hill had slipped away. Huge blocks of masonry protruded from the sand. There were the stubs of ancient pillars sticking up like fluoridated teeth. Between two of them was an arched doorway three times as high as Victor. It was sealed with a pair of pale grey doors, either of stone or of wood that had become as hard as stone over the years. One of them was slightly open, but had been prevented from opening further by the drifts of sand in front of it. Frantically scrabbled furrows had been dug deep into the sand. Ginger had been trying to shift it with her bare hands. "'Stupid thing to do in this heat,' said Victor vaguely. He looked from the door to the sea and then down at Gaspode. Laddie scrambled up the sand and barked excitedly at the crack between the doors. 
What's he doing that for? said Victor, suddenly feeling spooked. All his hair is standing up. You don't think he's got one of those mysterious animal premonitions of evil, do you? I think he's a pillock, said Gaspode. Laddie, shut up. There was a yelp. Laddie recoiled from the door, lost his balance on the shifting sand and rolled down the slope. He leapt to his feet and started barking again, not ordinary stupid dog barking this time, but the genuine treed cat variety. Victor leaned forward and touched the door. It felt very cold, despite the perpetual heat of Holywood, and there was just a faint suspicion of vibration. He ran his fingers over the surface. There was a roughness there, as though there had been a carving that had been worn into obscurity over the years. "'A door like that,' said Gaspode behind him, "'a door like that, if you want my opinion, a door like that.' He took a deep breath. "'Bodes!' "'Hm? What? Bodes what?' "'It don't have to bode anything,' said Gaspode. "'Just basic bodingness is bad enough. Take it from me.' "'It must have been important. Looks a bit temple-ish,' said Victor. "'Why'd she want to open it?' "'Bits of cliff sliding down and mysterious doors appearing,' said Gaspode, shaking his head. "'That's a lot of boding. Let's go somewhere far away and really... Think about it, eh? Ginger gave a groan. Victor crouched down. What'd she say? Dunno, said Gaspode. It sounded like I want to be alone, I thought. Daft. Touch of the sun there, I reckon, said Gaspode, knowledgeably. Maybe you're right. Her head certainly feels very hot. He picked her up, staggering a little under the weight. Come on, he managed. Let's get down into the town. It'll be getting dark soon. He looked around at the stunted trees. The door lay in a sort of hollow, which presumably caught enough dew to make the growth there slightly less desiccated than elsewhere. "'You know, this place looks familiar,' he said. "'We did our first click here. It's where I first met her.' "'Very romantic,' said Gaspode distantly, hurrying away with Laddie bounding happily around him. "'If something horrible comes out of that door, you can think of it as our monster.' "'Hey, wait!' Hurry up, then. What would she want to be alone for, do you think? Beats me. After they'd gone, silence poured back into the hollow. A little later, the sun set. Its long light hit the door, turning the merest scratches into deep relief. With the help of imagination, they might just have formed the image of a man with a sword. There was the faintest of noises as, grain by grain, sand trickled away from the door. By midnight... It had opened by at least a sixteenth of an inch. Holywood dreamed. It dreamed of waking up. Ruby damped down the fires under the vats, put the benches on the tables and prepared to shut the blue lias. But just before blowing out the last lamp, she hesitated in front of the mirror. He'd been waiting out there again tonight, just like every night. He'd been enduring the evening, grinning to himself. He was planning something. Ruby had been taking advice from some of the girls who worked in the cliques, and in addition to her feather boa, she'd now invested in a broad-rimmed hat with some sort of oogre, cherries, she thought they were called, in it. She'd been assured that the effect was stunning. The trouble, she had to admit, was that he was, well, a very hunky troll. For millions of years, troll women had been naturally attracted to trolls built like a monolith with an apple on top. 
Ruby's treacherous instincts were firing messages up her spine, insidiously insisting that in those long fangs and bandy legs was everything a troll girl could wish for in a mate. Trolls like Rock, or Morrie, of course, were far more modern, and could do things like use a knife and fork. But there was something, well, reassuring about detritus. Perhaps it was the way his knuckles touched the ground so dynamically. And apart from anything else, she was sure she was brighter than he was. There was a sort of gormless unstoppability about him that she found rather fascinating. That was the instincts at work again. Intelligence has never been a particularly valuable survival trait in a troll. And she had to admit that whatever she might attempt in the way of feather boas and fancy hats, she was pushing 140 and was 400 pounds above the fashionable weight. If only he'd buck his ideas up, or at least buck one idea up. Maybe this make-up the girls had been talking about could be worth a try. She sighed, blew out the lamp, opened the door and stepped out into a maze of roots. A gigantic tree stretched the whole length of the alley. He must have dragged it for miles. The few surviving branches poked through the windows or waved forlornly in the air. In the middle of it all was Detritus, perched proudly on the trunk, his face split in a watermelon grin, his arms spread wide. Treller, he said. Ruby heaved a gigantic sigh. Romance wasn't easy when you were a troll. The librarian forced the page open and chained it down. The book tried to snap at him. Its contents had made it what it was, evil and treacherous. It contained forbidden knowledge. Well, not actually forbidden. No one had ever gone so far as forbidding it. Apart from anything else, in order to forbid it, you'd have to know what it was, which was forbidden. But it definitely contained the sort of information which, once you knew it, you wished you hadn't. The Necro-Telecomnicon was written by a Clatchian necromancer known to the world as Ahmed the Mad, although he preferred to be called Ahmed the I-Just-Get-These-Headaches. It is said that the book was written in one day after Ahmed drank too much of the strange, thick Clatchian coffee, which doesn't just sober you up, but takes you through sobriety and out the other side, so that you glimpse the real universe beyond the clouds of warm self-delusion that sapient life usually generates around itself to stop it turning into a nutcake. Little is known about his life prior to this event, because the page headed about the author spontaneously combusted shortly after his death. However, a section headed Other Books by the Same Author indicates that his previous published work was Ahmed the I Just Get These Headaches book of humorous cat stories, which might explain a lot. Legend said that any mortal man who read more than a few lines of the original copy would die insane. This was certainly true. Legend also said that the book contained illustrations that would make a strong man's brain dribble out of his ears. This was probably true, too. Legend went on to say that merely opening the Necrotelecomnicon would cause a man's flesh to crawl off his hand and up his arm. No one actually knew if this was true, but it sounded horrible enough to be true, and no one was about to try any experiments. Legend had a lot to say about the Necrotelecomnicon, in fact, but absolutely nothing to say about orangutans, who could tear the book into little bits and chew it for all legend cared. The worst that had ever happened to the librarian after looking at it was a mild migraine and a touch of eczema. But that was no reason to take chances. 
He adjusted the smoked glass of the visor and ran one black leather finger down the index. The words bridled as the digit slid past and tried to bite it. Occasionally he'd hold the strip of film up to the light of the flickering torch. The wind and sand had blurred them, but there was no doubt that there were carvings on the rock, and the librarian had seen designs like that before. He found the reference he was looking for, and after a brief struggle during which he had to threaten the necrotelecomnicon with the torch, forced the book to turn the page. He peered closer. Good old Ahmed the I just get these headaches. And in that hill, it is said, a door out of the world was found, and people of the city watched what was seen therein, knowing not that dread waited between the universes. The librarian's fingertip dragged from right to left across the pictures and skipped to the next paragraph. For others found the gate of holy wood, and fell upon the world, and in one nighty all manner of madnessy befell, and chaos prevailed, and the city sank beneath the sea, and all became one with the, the fishes and the lobsters, save for the few who fled. He curled a lip and looked further down the page. A golden warrior who drove the fiends back and saved the world and said, Where the gate is, there am I also. I am he that was born of holy wood to guard the wild idea. And they said, What must we do to destroy the gate forever? And he said unto them, This you cannot do, for it is not a thing. But I will guard the gate for you. And they, not having been born yesterday, and fearing the cure more than the malady, said to him, What will you take from us that you will guard the door? And he grew until he was the height of a tree, and said, Only your remembrance, that I do not sleep. Three times a day will you remember, Holywood else the cities of the world will tremble and fall, and you will see the greatest of them all in flames. And with that the golden man took up his golden sword, and went into the hill, and stood at the gate forever. And the people said to one another, Funny, he looks just like my Uncle Osbert. The librarian turned the page. But there were among them humans and animals alike, those touched by the magic of holy wood. It goeth through the generations like an ancient curse, until the priests cease in their remembrance, and the golden man sleepeth. Then let the world beware. The librarian let the book snap shut. It wasn't an uncommon legend, he'd read it before, at least had read most of it, in books considerably less dangerous than this. You came across variants in all the cities of the Stowe Plain. There had been a city once in the mists of prehistory, bigger than Ankh-Morpork, Pork, if that were possible, and the inhabitants had done something, some sort of unspeakable crime, not just against mankind or the gods, but against the very nature of the universe itself, which had been so dreadful that it had sunk beneath the sea one stormy night. Only a few people had survived to carry to the barbarian peoples in the less advanced parts of the disc all the arts and crafts of civilization, such as usury and macrame. No one had ever really taken it seriously. It was just one of those usual, if you don't stop it, you'll go blind myths that civilizations tend to hand on to their descendants. 
After all, Ankh Morpork itself was generally considered as wicked a city as you could hope to find in a year of shore leaves, and seemed to have avoided any kind of supernatural vengeance, although it was always possible that it had taken place and no one had noticed. Legend had always put the nameless city far away and long ago. No one knew where it was, or even if it had existed. The librarian glared at the symbols again. They were very familiar. They were on the old ruins all over Holy Wood. Azurel stood on a low hill, watching the sea of elephants move below him. Here and there a supply wagon bobbed between the dusty grey bodies like a rudderless boat. A mile of veldt was being churned into a soggy mud wallow, bare of grass, although by the smell of it it would be the greenest patch on the disc after the rains came. He dabbed at his eyes with the corner of his robe. Three hundred and sixty-three. Who'd have thought it? The air was solid with the peaked trumpeting of three hundred and sixty-three elephants. And with the hunting and trapping parties already going on ahead, there should be plenty more, according to Mbu, anyway. And he wasn't going to argue. Funny that. For years he'd thought of Mbu as a sort of mobile smile, a handy lad with a brush and a shovel, but not what you might call a major achiever. And then suddenly, someone somewhere wanted a thousand elephants, and the lad had raised his head and a gleam had come into his eye, and you could see that under that grin was a skilled chylopachydermatalist, ready to answer the call. Funny, you could know someone for their whole life and not realise that the gods had put them into this world to move a thousand elephants around the place. Azurel had no sons. He'd already made up his mind to leave everything to his assistant. Everything he had at this point amounted to 363 elephants and a ha-ha-ha, a mammoth overdraft. But it was the thought that counted. Mbu trotted up the path towards him, his clipboard held firmly under one arm. "'Everything ready, boss,' he said. "'You just got to say the word.' Azaral drew himself up. He looked around at the heaving plain, the distant baobab trees, the purple mountains. "'Oh, yes, the mountains.' He'd had misgivings about the mountains. He'd mentioned them to Mbu, who'd said, We'll cross them bridges when we get to Emboss. And when Azural had pointed out that there weren't any bridges, he had looked him squarely in the eye and said firmly, First we build them bridges, then we cross them. Far beyond the mountains was the Circle Sea and Ankh Morpork, and this holy wood place, far away places with strange-sounding names. A wind blew across the veldt, carrying faint whispers even here. Azural raised his staff. It's fifteen hundred miles to Ankh-Morpork, he said. We've got three hundred and sixty-three elephants, fifty carts of forage, the monsoon's about to break, and we're wearing... We're wearing sort of things like glass, only dark, dark, glass things on our eyes. His voice trailed off. His brow furrowed as if he'd just been listening to his own voice and hadn't understood it. The air seemed to glitter. He saw Mbu staring at him. He shrugged. Let's go, he said. Mbu cupped his hands. He'd spent all night working out the order of the march. Blue section belong Uncle Ngru. Forward, he shouted. Yellow section belong Antigugul. Forward. Green section belong Second Cousin Forward! An hour later, the veldt in front of the low hill was deserted except for a billion flies and one dung beetle who couldn't believe his luck. Something went plop 
on the red dust, throwing up a little crater. And again. And again. Lightning split the trunk of a nearby baobab. The rains began. Victor's back was beginning to ache. Carrying young women to safety looked a good idea on paper, but had major drawbacks after the first hundred yards. "'Have you any idea where she lives?' he said. "'And is it somewhere close?' "'No idea,' said Gaspode. "'She once said something about it being over a clothes shop,' said Victor. "'That'll be in the alley alongside Borgles, then,' said Gaspode. Gaspode and Laddie led the way through the alleys and up a rickety outside staircase. Maybe they smelled out Ginger's room. Victor wasn't going to argue with mysterious animal senses. Victor went up the back stairs as quietly as possible. He was dimly aware that where people stayed was often infested by the common or greatly suspicious landlady, and he felt that he had enough problems as it was. He used Ginger's feet to push open the door. It was a small room, low-ceilinged and furnished with the sad, washed-out furniture found in rented rooms across the multiverse. At least, that's how it had started out. What it was furnished with now was Ginger. She had saved every poster, even those from early clicks, when she was just in very small print as a girl. They were thumbtacked to the walls. Ginger's face and his own stared at him from every angle. There was a large mirror at one end of the pokey room and a couple of half-burned candles in front of him. Victor deposited the girl carefully on the narrow bed and then stared around him very carefully. His sixth, seventh and eighth senses were screaming at him. He was in a place of magic. It's like a sort of temple, he said. A temple to herself. It gives me the willies, said Gaspode. Victor stared. Maybe he'd always successfully avoided being awarded the pointy hat and the big staff, but he had acquired wizard instincts. He had a sudden vision of a city under the sea, with octopuses curling stealthily through the drowned doorways and lobsters watching the streets. Fates don't like it when people take up more space than they ought to. Everyone knows that. I'm going to be the most famous person in the whole world, thought Victor. That's what she said. He shook his head. No, he said aloud. She just likes the posters. It's just ordinary vanity. It didn't sound believable, even to him. The room fairly hummed with... With what? He hadn't felt anything like it before. Power of some sort, certainly. Something that was brushing tantalisingly against his senses. Not exactly magic, at least not the kind he was used to, but something that seemed similar while not being the same. Like sugar compared with salt. The same shape and the same colour, but... Ambition wasn't magical. Powerful, yes, but not magical, surely. Magic wasn't difficult. That was the big secret that the whole baroque edifice of wizardry had been set up to conceal. Anyone with a bit of intelligence and enough perseverance could do magic, which was why the wizards cloaked it with rituals and the whole pointy-hat business. The trick was to do magic and get away with it, because it was as if the human race was a field of corn and magic helped the users to grow just that bit taller so that they stood out. That attracted the attention of gods and, Victor hesitated, other things outside this world. People who used magic without knowing what they were doing usually came to a sticky end all over the entire room, sometimes. He pictured Ginger back on the beach. I want to be the most famous person in the whole world. Perhaps that was something new, come to think of it. Not ambition for gold or power or land or all the things that were familiar parts of the human world, just ambition to be yourself, as big as possible. Not ambition for, 
but to be. He shook his head. He was just in some room in some cheap building in some town that was about as real as, as well as the thickness of a click. It wasn't the place to have thoughts like this. The important thing was to remember that Holywood wasn't a real place at all. He stared at the posters again. You just get one chance, she said. You live for maybe seventy years, and if you're lucky, you get one chance. Think of all the natural skiers who are born in deserts. Think of all the genius blacksmiths who were born hundreds of years before anyone invented the horse. All the skills that are never used. All the wasted chances. How lucky for me, he thought gloomily, that I happen to be alive at this time. Ginger turned over in her sleep. At least her breathing was more regular now. Come on, said Gaspode, it's not right you being alone in a lady's boudoir. I'm not alone, Victor said. She's with me. That's the point, said Gaspode. Woof, Laddie added loyally. You know, said Victor, following the dogs down the stairs, I'm beginning to feel there's something wrong here. There's something going on and I don't know what it is. Why was she trying to get into the hill? Probably in league with the dread powers, said Gaspode. The city and the hill and the old book and everything, said Victor, ignoring this. It all makes sense if only I knew what was connecting it. He stepped out into the early evening, into the lights and noise of Holywood. Tomorrow we'll go up there in daylight and sort this out once and for all, he said. No, we won't, said Gaspode. The reason being, tomorrow we're going to Ankh-Morpork, remember? We, said Victor, Ginger and I are going. I didn't know about you. Laddie going too said Gaspode. Uh, ooh, ooh, good boy, laddie. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, yeah. I heard the trainer say, so I've got to go with him to see he don't get into a <laughs> style of thing. Victor yawned. Well, I'm going to go to bed. We'll probably have to start early. Gaspode looked innocently up and down the alley. Somewhere a door opened and there was the sound of drunken laughter. I thought I might have a bit of a stroll before turning in, he said. Sure, laddie. <laughs> Laddie, good boy. The sights and that. Victor looked doubtful. Don't keep him out too late, he said. People will worry. Yeah, right, said Gaspode. Good night. He sat and watched Victor wander off. He said under his dreadful breath. Catch anyone worrying about me. He glared up at Laddie, who sprang to obedient attention. Right, young fellow, me pup, he said. It's time you got educated. Lesson one. Glomming free drinks in bars. Lucky for you, he added, that you met me. Two canine shapes staggered uncertainly up the midnight street. We're poor little lambs, Gaspode howled. What have lost our way? Woof, 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 woof. We're little lost shapes, what have, what have... Gaspode sagged down and scratched an ear, or at least where he vaguely thought an ear might be. His leg waved uncertainly in the air. Laddie gave him a sympathetic look. It had been an amazingly successful evening. Gaspode had always got his free drinks by simply sitting and staring intently at people until they got uncomfortable, and poured him some beer in a saucer in the hope that he would drink it and go away. It was slow and tedious, but as a technique it had served him well. Whereas Laddie... Laddie did tricks... Laddie could drink out of bottles. Laddie could bark the numbers of fingers people held up. So could Gaspode, of course, but it had never occurred to him that such an activity could be rewarded. 
Laddie could home in on young women who were being taken out for the evening by a hopeful swain and lay his head on their lap and give them such a soulful look that the swain would buy him a saucer of beer and a bag of goldfish-shaped biscuits just in order to impress the prospective loved one. Gaspode had never been able to do that, because he was far too short for laps, and anyway got nothing but disgusted screams if he tried it. He'd sat under the table in perplexed disapproval to begin with, and then in alcoholic perplexed disapproval because Laddie was generosity itself when it came to sharing sources of beer. Now, after they'd both been thrown out, Gaspode decided it was time for a lecture in true dogness. You don't want to go himblong, umlong, humbling yourself to humans, he said. It's letting everyone down. We'll never throw off the shackles of dependency on mankind if dogs like you go around being glad to see people the whole time. I was personally disgusted when you did that lying on your back and playing dead routine, let me tell you. Oof. You're just a running dog of the human imperialists, said Gaspode severely. Laddie put his paws over his nose. Gaspode tried to stand up, tripped over his legs and sat down heavily. After a while, a couple of huge tears coursed down his fur. I mean, look at the start I had in life. Thrown in a river in a sack. An actual sack. Dear little puppy dog opens his eyes, looks out in wonder at the world style of thing. He's in this sack. And tears dripped off his nose. For two weeks I thought the brick was me mother. Oof, said Laddie with uncomprehending sympathy. Just my luck they threw me in the ark. Gaspode went on. Any other river, I'd have drowned and gone to doggy heaven. I heard where this big black ghostly dog who comes up to you when you die and says your time has gone. 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 Gaspode stared at nothing much. Can't sink in the ank, though, he said thoughtfully. Very tough river, the ank. Oof. It shouldn't happen to a dog, said Gaspode, metaphorically. Oof! Gaspode peered blearily at Laddie's bright, alert, and irrevocably stupid face. You don't understand a bloody word I've been saying, do you? he muttered. Oof! said Laddie, begging. Lucky bugger! sighed Gaspode. There was a commotion at the other end of the alley. He heard a voice say, There he is! Laddie! Here, boy! The words dripped relief. It's the man! growled Gaspode. You don't have to go. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Good boy, laddie. Laddie, good boy. Ooh, barked laddie, trotting forward obediently, if a little unsteadily. We've been looking for you everywhere, muttered one of the trainers, raising a stick. Don't hit it, said the other trainer. You'll ruin everything. He peered into the alley and met Gaspode's stare coming the other way. That's the flea bag that's been hanging around, he said. It gives me the creeps. Eve something at it, suggested the other man. The trainer reached down and picked up a stone. When he stood up again, the alley was empty. Drunk or sober, Gaspode had perfect reflexes in certain circumstances. See, the trainer said, glaring at the shadows, it's like it's some kind of mind-reader. Oh, it's just a mutt, said his companion. Don't worry about it. Come on, get the leash on this one and let's get him back before Mr Dibbler finds out. Laddie followed them obediently back to the century of the fruit bat and allowed himself to be chained up to his kennel. Possibly he didn't like the idea, but it was hard to be sure in the network of duties, obligations and vague emotional shadows that made up what, for want of a better word, had to be called his mind. 
He pulled experimentally on the chain once or twice and then lay down awaiting developments. After a while, a small, hoarse voice on the other side of the fence said, I could send you a bone with a file in it, only you'd eat it. Laddie perked up. Ooh, ooh, good boy, Laddie. Ooh, 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 good boy, Gaspoon. Ooh. Shh, shh. At least they ought to let you speak to a lawyer, said Gaspode. Chaining someone up's against human rights. Woof. Anyway, I'd paid him back. I followed the audible one back to his house and piddled all down his front door. Woof. Gaspode sighed and waddled away. Sometimes in his heart of hearts he wondered whether it wouldn't after all be nice to belong to someone. Not just be owned by them or chained up by them, but actually belong so that you were glad to see them and carried their slippers in your mouth and pined away when they died, etc. Laddie actually liked that kind of stuff, if you could call it liked. It was more like something built into his bones. Gaspode wondered darkly if this was true dogness, and growled deep in his throat. It wasn't, if he had anything to do with it, because true dogness wasn't about slippers and walkies and pining for people, Gaspode was sure. Dogness was about being tough and independent and mean. Yeah. Gaspode had heard that all canines could interbreed, even back to the original wolves, so that must mean that deep down inside every dog was a wolf. You could make a dog out of a wolf, but you couldn't take the wolf out of a dog. When the hard pad was acting up, and the fleas were feisty and acting full of plumptiousness, it was a comforting thought. Gaspode wondered how you went about mating with a wolf, and what happened to you when you stopped. Well, that didn't matter. What mattered was that true dogs didn't go around going mad with pleasure just because a human said something to them. Yeah. He growled at a pile of trash and dared it to disagree. Part of the pile moved, and a feline face with a defunct fish in its mouth peered out at him. He was just about to bark half-heartedly at it for tradition's sake when it spat the fish out and spoke to him. Hello, Gashpode. Gaspode relaxed. Oh, well, old cat. No offence meant, didn't know it was you. I hateth fish, said the cat, but at least they don't talk back. Another part of the trash moved and Squeak the mouse emerged. What are you two doing down here, said Gaspode. I thought you said it was safer on the hill. Not any more, said the cat. It's getting too spooky. Gaspode frowned. Yet a cat, he said disapprovingly. You ought to be right alongside the idea of spooky. Mm, but that doesn't extend to having golden sparks crackling off your fur and the ground shaking the whole time, and weird voices that you think must be happening in your own head, said the cat. It's becoming eldritch up there. So we all came down, said Squeak. Mr Thumpy and the duck are hiding out in the dunes. Another cat dropped off the fence beside them. It was large and ginger and not blessed with Holywood intelligence. It stared at the sight of a mouse looking relaxed in the presence of a cat. Squeak nudged Cat on the paw. Get rid of it, he said. Cat glared at the newcomer. Sod off, he said. Go on, beat it. Gods, this is so humiliating. Not just for you, said Gaspode, as the new cat trotted away, shaking its head. If some of the dogs in this town see me chatting to a cat, my street cred is going to go way down. We were reckoning, said the cat, with the occasional nervous glance towards Squeak, that maybe we ought to give in and see if, uh, see if... He's trying to say that there might be a place for us in moving pictures, said Squeak. What do you think? As a double act, said Gaspode. They nodded. 
Not a chance, he said. Who's going to pay good money to see cats and mice chasing one another? They're only interested even in dogs if they just pander to humans the old time, so they certainly ain't going to want to watch a cat chase a mouse. Take it from me. I know about moving pictures. Then it's about time your humans got it sorted out so we can go home, snapped the mouse. The boy isn't doing anything. He's useless, said the cat. He's in love, said Gaspode. It's very tricky. Yes, I know how it is, said the cat sympathetically. People throwing old boots and things at you. Old boots, said the mouse. That's what's always happened to me when I've been in love, said the cat wistfully. It's different for humans, said Gaspode uncertainly. You don't get so many boots and buckets of water thrown at you. It's more, uh, flowers and arguing and stuff. The animals looked glumly at one another. I've watched them, said Squeak. She thinks he's an idiot. That's all part of it, added Gaspode. They call it romance. Cat shrugged. Give me a boot every time. You know where you stand with a boot. The glittering spirit of Hollywood streamed out into the world, no longer a trickle but a flood. It bubbled in the veins of people, even of animals. When the handlemen turned their handles, it was there. When the carpenters hammered their nails, they hammered for Hollywood. Hollywood was in Borgel's stew, in the sand, in the air. It was growing, and it was going to flower. Cut me own throat Dibbler, or CMOT, as he likes to be called, sat up in bed and stared at the darkness. In his head a city was on fire. He fumbled hurriedly beside his bed for the matches, managed to light the candle, and eventually located a pen. There was no paper. He specifically told everyone there ought to be some paper by his bed in case he woke up with an idea. That's when you got the best ideas, when you were asleep. At least there was a pen and ink. Images sleeted past his eyes. Catch them now or let them go forever. He snatched up the pen and started to scribble on the bedsheets. A man and a woman aflame with passion in a city riven by civil war. The pen scritched and spluttered its way across the coarse linen. Yes, yes, this was it. He'd show them with their silly plaster pyramids and penny and dime palaces. This was the one they'd have to look up to. When the history of Hollywood was written, this was the one they'd point to and say, That was the moving picture to end all moving pictures. Trolls, battles, romance, people with thin moustaches, soldiers of fortune, and one woman's fight to keep the... Dibbler hesitated. Something or other she loves. We'll think about this later. In a world gone mad. The pen jerked and tore and raced onwards. Brother against brother, women in crinoline dresses slapping people's faces, a mighty dynasty brought low. A great city aflame, not with passion, he made a note in the margin, but with flame. Possibly even... He bit his lip. Yeah, he'd been waiting for this. Yeah. A thousand elephants. Later, Sol Dibbler said, Look, Uncle, the Ankh-Mar Pork Civil War, great idea, no problem with that. Famous historical occurrence, no problem. It's just that none of the historians mentioned seeing any elephants. It was a big war, said Dibbler defensively. You're bound to miss things. Not a thousand elephants, I think. Who's running this studio? It's just that... Listen, said Dibbler, maybe they didn't have a thousand elephants, but we're going to have a thousand elephants, because a thousand elephants is more real, OK? 
The sheet gradually filled up with Dibbler's excited scrawl. He reached the bottom and continued over the woodwork of the bed. By the gods, this was the real stuff. No fiddly little battles here. They'd need just about every handleman in Holywood. He sat back, panting with exhilarated exhaustion. He could see it now. It was as good as made. All it needed was a title, something with a ring to it, something that people would remember. Something, he scratched his chin with a pen, that said that the affairs of ordinary people were so much chaff in the great storms of history. Storms, that was it. Good imagery, a storm. You got thunder, lightning, rain, wind. Wind, that was it. He crawled up to the top of the sheet and with great care wrote... Blown away. Victor tossed and turned in his narrow bed, trying to get to sleep. Images marched through his half-dozing mind. There were chariot races and pirate ships and things he couldn't identify, and in the middle of it all, this thing climbing a tower, something huge and terrible, grinning defiance at the world, and someone screaming. He sat up, drenched in sweat. After a few minutes, he swung his legs out of bed and went to the window. Above the lights of the town, Holywood Hill brooded in the first dim light of dawn. It was going to be another fine day. Holywood dreams surged through the streets in great invisible golden waves. And something came with it. Something that never, never dreamed at all. Something that never went to sleep. Ginger got out of bed and also looked towards the hill, although it is still doubtful if she saw it. Moving like a sightless person in a familiar room, she padded across to the door, down the steps and out into the tail of the night. A small dog, a cat and a mouse, watched from the shadows as she moved silently down the alley and headed for the hill. "'Did you see her eyes?' said Gaspode. "'Glowing,' said the cat. "'Yuck!' "'She's going to the hill,' said Gaspode. "'I don't like that.' "'So what?' said Squeak. "'She's always round the hill somewhere, goes up there every night, and moons around, looking dramatic.' "'What?' "'Every night. We thought it was all this romance stuff.' "'But you can see by the way she's moving that something's not right,' said Gaspo desperately. "'That's not walking, that's lurching, like she's being pulled along by an inner voice style of thing.' Don't look like that to me, said Squeak. Walking on two legs is lurching, in my book. You've only got to look at her face to see there's something wrong. Of course there's something wrong. She's a human, said Squeak. Gaspode considered the options. There weren't many. The obvious one was to find Victor and get him to come back here. He rejected it. It sounded too much like the silly, bouncy sort of thing that Laddie would do. It suggested that the best a dog could think of when confronted with a puzzle was to find a human to solve it. He trotted forward and gripped the trailing hem of the sleepwalker's nightdress firmly in his jaws. She walked on, pulling him off his feet. The cat laughed, far too sarcastically for Gaspode's liking. "'Time to wake up, miss,' he growled, letting the nightdress go. Ginger strode onwards. "'See,' said the cat, "'give them an opposed thumb and they think they're something special.' "'I'm going to follow her,' said Gaspode. "'A girl could come to arm out there by herself at night.' "'That's dogs for you,' said the cat to Squeak. "'Always fawning on people. "'It'll be Diamante Collars and a bowl with his name on it next, I'm telling you.' "'If you're looking to lose a mouthful of fur, "'you've come to the right place, Kitty,' snarled Gaspode, "'bearing his rotten teeth again. "'I don't have to tolerate that sort of thing.' said the cat, lifting its nose haughtily. Come, squeak, let us hie to a garbage heap where there ain't so much rubbish. 
Gaspode scowled at their departing backs. Pussy, he yelled after them. Then he trotted after Ginger, hating himself. If I was a wolf, which technically I am, he thought, there'd definitely be a rending of jaws and similar. Any girl wandering around by herself would be in dead trouble. I could attack. I could attack any time I liked. I'm just choosing not to. One thing I'm not doing, I'm not sort of keeping an eye on her. I know Victor told me to keep an eye on her, but catch me going round doing what humans tell me. They'd like to see humans that could give me orders. Tear his throat out, just like that. <laughs> and if anything happened to her, he'd go round mooning for days and probably forget to feed me. Not that dogs like me needs humans to feed them. I could be out bringing down reindeers just by leaping on their backs and biting the jugulars off. But it's damn convenient getting it all on a plate. She was moving quite fast. Gaspode's tongue hung out as he strove to keep up. His head was aching. He risked a few sideways squints to see if any other dogs were watching. If they were, he thought, he could pretend he was chasing her. Which was what he was doing anyway. Yeah. The trouble was, he never had much breath at the best of times, and it was getting hard to keep pace. She ought to have the decency to slow down a bit. Ginger began to climb the lower slopes of the hill. Gaspode considered barking loudly, and then if anyone drew attention to this afterwards, he could always say it was to frighten her. Trouble was, he had about enough wind left for a threatening wheeze. Ginger topped a rise and went down into the little dell among the trees. Gaspode staggered after her, righted himself, opened his mouth to whimper a warning, and almost swallowed his tongue. The door had opened several inches. More sand rolled down the heap, even as Gaspode watched. And he could hear voices. They didn't seem to be speaking words, but the bones of words, meaning without disguise. They hummed around his bullet head like mendicant mosquitoes, begging and conjoling, and... He was the most famous dog in the world. The knots unravelled from his coats, the frayed patches sprouted glossy curls, his fur grew on his suddenly supple frame, and withdrew from his teeth. Plates appeared in front of him, not laden with the multicoloured and mysterious organs that he was normally expected to eat, but with dark red steak. There was sweet water, no, there was beer in a bowl with his name on it. Tantalising odours on the air suggested that a number of lady dogs would be happy to make his acquaintance after he had drunk and dined. Thousands of people thought he was marvellous. He had a collar with his name on it, and... Now, that couldn't be right. Not a collar. It'd be a squeaky toy next if you didn't draw the line at collars. The image collapsed in confusion, and now the pack bounded through the dark, snow-covered trees, falling in behind him, red mouths agape, long legs eating up the road. The fleeing humans on the sledge didn't have a chance. One was thrown aside when a runner bounced off a branch and lay screaming in the road, as Gaspode and the wolves fell upon... No, that wasn't right, he thought wretchedly. You didn't actually eat humans. They got up your nose all right. The gods knew. But you couldn't actually eat them. A confusion of instincts threatened to short-circuit his schizophrenically doggy mind. The voices gave up their assault in disgust and turned their attention to Ginger, who was methodically trying to shift more sand. One of Gaspode's fleas bit him sharply. It was probably dreaming of being the biggest flea in the world. His leg came up automatically to scratch it, and the spell faded. He blinked. Bloody hell, 
he whined. This is what's happening to the humans. Wonder what they're making her dream. The hairs rose along Gaspode's back. You didn't need any special mysterious animal instincts here. Perfectly generalised everyday instincts were enough to horrify him. There was something dreadful on the other side of the door. She was trying to let it out. He had to wake her up. Biting wasn't really a good idea. His teeth weren't that good these days. He doubted very much if barking would be any better. That left one alternative. The sand moved eerily under his paws. Maybe it was dreaming of being rocks. The scrawny trees around the hollow were wrapped in sequoia fantasies. Even the air that curled around Gaspode's bullet head moved sluggishly, although it's anyone's guess what the air dreams about. Gaspode trotted up to Ginger and pushed his nose against her leg. The universe contains any amount of horrible ways to be woken up, such as the noise of the mob breaking down the front door, the scream of fire engines, or the realisation that today is the Monday which on Friday night was a comfortably long way off. A dog's wet nose is not strictly speaking the worst of the bunch, but it has its own peculiar dreadfulness which connoisseurs of the ghastly and dog owners everywhere have come to know and dread. It's like having a small piece of defrosting liver pressed lovingly against you. Ginger blinked. The glow faded from her eyes. She looked down, her expression of horror turning to astonishment, and then, when she saw Gaspode leering up at her, back to a more mundane horror. Hello, Gaspode said ingratiatingly. She backed away, bringing her hands up protectively. Sand dribbled between her fingers. Her eyes flickered towards it in bewilderment and then back to Gaspode. God, that's horrible, she said. What's going on? Why am I here? Her hands flew to her mouth. Oh, no, she whispered. Not again. She stared at him for a moment, glared up at the doorway, then turned, hitched up her nightdress and hurried back to town through the morning mists. Gaspode struggled after her, aware of anger in the air, desperately trying to put as much space as possible between the door and himself. Something dreadful in there, he thought. Probably tentacle things that rips your face off. I mean, when you find mysterious doors in old hills, stands to reason what comes out ain't going to be pleased to see you. Evil creatures what man shouldn't what of. And here's one dog what don't want to what of him either. Why couldn't she... He grumbled on towards the town. Behind him, the door moved the tiniest fraction of an inch. Holywood was awake long before Victor, and the hammering from the century of the fruit bat echoed around the sky. Wagon loads of timber were queuing up to enter the archway. He was buffeted and pushed aside by a hurrying stream of plasterers and carpenters. Inside, crowds of workmen scurried around the arguing figures of Silverfish and C.M.O.T. Dibbler. Victor reached them just as Silverfish said in astonished tones. The whole city? You can leave out the bits round the edge, said Dibbler, but I want the whole of the centre, the palace, the university, the guilds, everything that makes it a real city, understand? It's got to be right. He was red in the face. Behind him loomed Detritus the Troll, patiently holding what appeared to be a bed over his head on one massive hand, like a waiter with a tray. Dibbler had the sheets in one hand. Then Victor realised that the whole bed, not just the sheets, was covered in writing. But the cost, Silverfish protested. We'll find the money somehow, said Dibbler calmly. Silverfish couldn't have looked more horrified if Dibbler had worn a dress. He tried to rally. 
Well, if you're determined, throat. Right. I suppose, uh, come to think of it, maybe we could amortise the cost over, over several clicks, uh, maybe even hire it out afterwards. What are you talking about? demanded Dibbler. We're building it for blown away. Yes, yes, of course, said Silverfish soothingly. And then afterwards we can ho- Afterwards? There won't be any afterwards. Haven't you read the script? Detritus, show him the script. Detritus obligingly dropped the bed between them. It's your bed, throat. Script, bed, what's the difference? Look, here, just above the carving. There was a pause while Silverfish read. It was quite a long one. Silverfish wasn't used to reading matter that didn't come in columns with totals at the bottom. Eventually he said, You're gonna... Set it on fire. It's historical. You can't argue with history, said Dibbler smugly. The city was burned down in the Civil War. Everyone knows that. Silverfish drew himself up. The city might have been, he said stiffly, but I didn't have to find the budget for it. It's recklessly extravagant. I'll pay for it somehow, said Dibbler calmly. In a word, impossible. That's two words, said Dibbler. "'There's no way I can work on something like this,' said Silverfish, ignoring the interruption. "'I've tried to see your point of view, haven't I? "'But you've taken moving pictures, and you're trying to turn them into... into dreams. "'I never wanted them to be like this. "'Include me out.' "'Okay.' Dibbler looked up at the troll. "'Mr. Silverfish was just leaving,' he said. Detritus nodded, and then slowly and firmly picked up Silverfish by his collar. Silverfish went white. "'You can't get rid of me like that,' he said. "'You want to bet? "'There won't be an alchemist in Holywood who'll work for you. "'We'll take the Handlemen with us. "'You'll be finished!' "'Listen, after this click, the whole of Holywood will be coming to me for a job. "'Detritus, throw this bum out!' "'Right you are, Mr. Debler,' rumbled the troll, gripping Silverfish's collar. You haven't heard the last of this, you you scheming, devious, megalomaniac! Dibbler removed his cigar. That's Mr. Megalomaniac to you, he said. He replaced the cigar and nodded significantly to the troll, who gently but firmly grasped Silverfish by a leg as well. You lay a finger on me and you'll never work in this town again, shouted Silverfish. I got a job anyway, Mr. Silverfish said Detritus calmly, carrying Silverfish towards the gate. I'm vice president of throwing out people Mr Dibbler doesn't like the face of. Then you'll have to take on an assistant, snarled Silverfish. I got a nephew looking for a career, said the troll. Have a nice day. End of CD 6